Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you were profiling someone that you wish to be an employee of yours, or perhaps a member of a team that you were coaching, you would probably say that self-confidence is an admirable quality. You would say concerning that person who is a potential employee or member of your team, that person's got self-confidence and I like it. You might say to yourself, that person has a can-do attitude. As a matter of fact, Paul made comments that were similar to that when he said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Sounds very self-confident. The thing Paul did not appreciate and did not endorse was self-confidence that was the equivalent of self-righteousness. Paul did not think that that kind of self-confidence was correct or good. That kind of self-confidence, namely self-righteousness, is in effect hubris or pride. When it comes to righteousness, let's put it straight. Paul has no confidence in himself. None at all. I'll say it again. When it comes to righteousness, 
Paul has no self-confidence. None at all. Why? That's what this passage is all about. Paul begins this passage by basically giving a diatribe. He goes on the attack against the enemies of those who potentially are influencing people at Philippi. Now let me say up front, Paul frequently uses extreme language. And we don't want to edit the extreme language. We want to understand the extreme language. We want to understand why he used extreme language. And the next few sentences that describe the people who are enemies of Paul and enemies of faith are extreme language. He says, watch out for those who are self-confident in their own righteousness. Watch out for those who are absolutely immersed in the notion that you can get it right if you follow the law. Watch out for them. I've got a name for them. I call them dogs. Now here's an interesting cultural dissimilarity. To say that in this culture is not necessarily a demeaning statement. Some of you have dogs that you like better than your neighbor, right? Yeah. Dogs are our pets. They're our friends. We love our dogs. Most of them. Um, dogs are great. But in this culture, there was no such thing as a pet dog. What dogs were were snarling beasts that ran the streets night and day looking for garbage food. They would fight for, one, for food with one another. And if you even so much as got close to them, when they were trying to get that food, they would snarl and maybe bite you. And furthermore, they were disease carriers. No one wanted to be bitten by a dog. They were not a favorite animal, not a pet. They were vicious. You know what's interesting about that description? The Jewish culture routinely called the Gentile culture dogs. And Paul turns the tables. Because apparently there are some people, certainly at Galatia and perhaps at Philippi, who are trying to influence these Christians to follow every mandate of the Mosaic Law, including circumcision. And Paul flips the image and says, in effect, the Gentiles aren't dogs. It's the Judaizers who are dogs. Now, before you take too much offense at Paul, he himself was a Jew. And before you take too much offense at Paul, remember that his language is extreme. He's not talking about all Jews. He's not even talking about all Pharisees. He's talking about a particular sect that was placing on these people requirements that were not necessary for righteousness in Christ. And he says, those people are dogs. Watch out for them. Um, maybe it would be appropriate to say, watch out for them. They'll bite you. And they'll give you a disease. 
The second description he gives of the enemies of Philippi are those who do evil. Those who do evil. Now, when you think of people who do evil, you think of people who have a lifestyle that's abhorrent to righteousness. You may think of criminals. You may think of bad actors. You may think of any number of people. That was not these people. They were not that kind of people. They were the kind of people who legalistically followed the law. They didn't break any rules. They were upstanding citizens. They were law-abiding people. And Paul calls them the evil ones. That's extreme language. Those who are following God according to the law are the evil ones. Paul says, yes, they're the evil ones. And why are they the evil ones? The reasons they're the evil ones is because they're trying to impose upon those Christians regulations that are legalistic concerning the law that are absolutely not necessary for their life in Christ. Paul wants to have a singular message. And the singular message is faith in Christ plus nothing. That is your redemption. There's a third thing that Paul calls these folks. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. That's ironic too. Because Gentiles called the Jews mutilators of the flesh because of circumcision. And Paul flips the image upside down. And he says, those people are mutilators of the flesh. The Gentiles, by the way, these kind of uh, barbed criticisms go both ways. The Gentiles called the Jews mutilators of the flesh because of circumcision. The Jews called the Gentiles mutilators of the flesh because they did things like put symbols on their bodies by cutting themselves or even tattoos. Any of those things were abhorrent to the culture of Judaism. Paul says these people are mutilators of the flesh. And he's using the very language that's used by Gentiles against Jews. And he himself is a Jew. Why are they mutilators of the flesh? Because they're circumcised? Not really. Because they think circumcision is a good idea? Not really. The reason they're mutilators of the flesh is because they've taken the faith that I've delivered to you, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, and they have placed it in an inseparable, interlocking connection with the mutilation of the flesh. In other words, they have elevated the notion of the flesh beyond the notion of the spirit or the notion of faith. And thus, all they're doing now is mutilating the flesh. Because there's no spirit in it. There's no faith in it. After Paul attacks the critics, or the enemy, to put it more specifically, he says, all those regulations that they're telling you you have to follow, I know about them. The reason I know about them is because I followed all of them. The reason I know about what they're calling for is because I'm above reproach when it comes to their standards. Let me remind you of who I am. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Eighth day. That was a rule, a requirement, according to the Mosaic Law. Perfect timing. 
He said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a special tribe for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is because David, the epic king, and the nation of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. And those who were reading the New Testament at the time realized that Jesus was routinely called the son of David. There was a connection. The first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. It's probably true that Paul, formerly named Saul, was given the namesake of King Saul, the first king of Israel, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul knew his pedigree. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, by the way, was one of the, um, one of the tribes that didn't break away from the kingdom of David during the divided monarchy. That was another thing that was great about the tribe of Benjamin. He said, not only am I a tribe of Benjamin kind of guy, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You might say a Jew of the Jews. I am absolutely above reproach in that regard. I'm not just purely Jewish by birth. I'm not just culturally Jewish. I am all in. My family was all in. And even though, he didn't put these in words, we know this about him, even though I was born in Tarsus, a place that was really Gentilish, I lived according to the law and my parents trained me according to the law and I knew Hebrew as well as I knew Aramaic. I trained since I was a child to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Another place he says, my teacher was Gamaliel. It's like saying for a Greek, my teacher was Aristotle. Paul says, I understand. I've got all the pedigree. Furthermore, I, I'm a Pharisee. I was from that rich, honorable tradition. A rich, honorable tradition that even goes to the Maccabean Revolution, revolt against the oppressors of Israel. Most of those people who led that revolt were, were Pharisees. Paul knows they knew that. Paul knows they knew that a Pharisee was a separated one. Paul knows that they knew that a Pharisee was absolutely passionate about law and justice. And he says, I'm a Pharisee. Circumcised on the eighth day. Tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of the Hebrews. Pharisee of the Pharisees. I got all the boxes checked, my friend. Every one of them. And then he launches into his real identity. That's my pedigree. Here's my real identity. My real identity is this. All of those things. Everything I've listed. And he might have said, and even more. I count all of them to be rubbish. I count all of them to be worthless. Let me remind you again of Paul's extreme language. What is he saying here? Let's not go astray. He's not saying that the law is awful and wicked. He's not discounting the Old Testament. He's not bracketing it from the New Testament. He's not saying I got a new gospel for you that means you don't follow the law. He's not doing any of that. 
He's speaking in very shrill comparative language. Compared to all of that, which is a good. Compared to all of that, it's worthless when I think of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Because my relationship with Jesus Christ eclipses every bit of righteousness I can imagine, or can you. According to Paul, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. Take a look at Romans 7. According to Paul, in Romans 9, he loves his heritage. He loves the heritage of the law and the people of Israel. By the time you get to Romans 10, Paul has described to those who are listening what the law was really all about. Here's what the law was all about. Christ, he says, is the end of the law. He doesn't mean that it goes away. He means that Christ is the fulfillment of all the righteous requirements of the law. Everything was fulfilled in Christ. I want to read you um, several verses from Romans um, that I just found wonderful as I looked at about ten different translations and paraphrases. And this one happens to be the message. Let me read you the words. The early revelation, says Paul, it's all about this law. The early revelation was intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah, who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by the fine print. But trusting God, but trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. There's no precarious climb to heaven to recruit the Messiah. Here's what it is. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching, Paul says. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master. Embracing body and soul, God's work in us is what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God and trusting Him to do it for you. Don't get bogged down, he says, in trying to earn your way towards favor with God.
I've been a part of this tradition, he says, for a long time. And everything is like rubbish compared to knowing Christ. I want to know him who has given me so much. I want to know the power of his resurrection because that's what it's all about. I actually want to share in his sufferings. Doesn't sound like something that we would utter automatically, but actually there is a parallel. Have you ever heard of a soldier who was forced to leave the battlefield due to injury or something else? And have you ever heard the comment, I just want to be back with my men on the front lines. They want to be in the middle of the suffering. Why? Because they're banded together as brothers for a cause. Or how about this? A more romantic image. There's this sense in which both my wife and I made a commitment on June 12, 1981 to love one another and to suffer together. When she's in the midst of suffering, I actually want to be there. When she's struggling, I want to struggle with her. So Paul says, I want to participate in Christ's suffering because that's to be the closest I can possibly be to the one I love. And I want somehow, ultimately, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We might immediately think uh, the resurrection, the life to come, and that's true, but Paul is also speaking about daily practical living. He wants to attain to the power of the resurrection right here, right now, as he walks, as he thinks, as he teaches. He wants to experience the power of the resurrection. He wants to live around people who are dead. <laughs> And experience the resurrection so that they can find resurrection life. A few practical points of application as we go. The first one is this. Legalism. Legalism. It destroys righteousness. I think Paul would agree with that statement. Legalism actually destroys righteousness. And experientially, maybe you've seen it. It creates a mean-spirited harshness with other people. Nobody ever seems to measure up. Legalism destroys righteousness because it sets impossible standards for the individual who's legalistic and for everyone around them. And quite frankly, legalism destroys righteousness because legalism becomes a form of self-worship. You're not really asking a question about God. 
you're asking a question about yourself. And your legalistic approach to righteousness becomes self-worship, not God-worship. The second thing is that the opposite of a legalism that destroys righteousness is that relationship. It motivates righteousness. If you focus on the phrase, I want to know Christ, if you think about the relationship itself, it actually motivates righteousness in us. As a matter of fact, to know is the word in the Hebrew that's used for Adam and Eve when they conceived and had their first child. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's, it's a term of intimacy, even romance and love. I didn't insert it into the text. Paul did, okay? If you want to charge me with being touchy-feely and romantic about love with God, then talk to Paul when you get to heaven. He said it. I want to know Christ. Relationship motivates righteousness. I want to know the one who gave so much for me. I want to please the one who loves me. I want to experience life with the one that I love. Relationship motivates righteousness. The final point is a question. How does this happen? How do we move from our propensity towards legalism and we move in the direction of knowing Christ? Um, I'm going to say this in this service, but not the second, because I don't want to embarrass a couple of people who will be here. But... Last night was a very short night for me because uh, a young man on Friday came to my office to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage. Um, I grilled him for an hour and a half and finally said yes. <laughs> and he told me, well, uh, this is the plan and and he said, we're going to meet at a certain place, a favorite street of hers, and I'm going to propose. And my family's in town, supposedly for his father's birthday. And I, I really want you all to come up and be there. So we came. And the cobblestone street and the proposal. And then as soon as it happened, we were, you know, in waiting. And I whipped around in the car and started blowing the horn. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I, but I use the illustration to say this. Um, I hope, I think I know, I hope that that young man wants to get to know my daughter more and more every day. I think he wants to love her more and more every day. And how is he going to do that? Well, I suggest the same way we ought to do it with the Lord. Can you imagine him loving her well without communication? Prayer is communication with God. Can you imagine 
him loving her more if he didn't watch her every movement and sense her mood and watch her facial expressions? Can you imagine he, he would love her in such a way that he would ignore those things? No, he, he'd want to know what she wanted. Can you imagine that if she wrote him a letter, he would say, well, I already know her. It's not that important. No, you know what he'd do, I hope. I'll ask him next year. What he would do is he'd read the letter over and over again. Because he'd want to see what was really there. You see the parallel, right? If you want to know God, you've got to study Him. You've got to listen to His every word. You've got to communicate with Him as if He's the person sitting right next to you or across from the table. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing and the suffering. I want to know Jesus Christ my Lord that way, says Paul. No wonder he said my pedigree is worthless. Does anybody who's in love with another person ask for a pedigree? No, you're just overwhelmed by love. There's, there's one final way um, that I'm going to suggest that we know God, not just the ones that I described in a love relationship with a human being, but... It's worshiping together with the people who have the same love. Like you're doing right now. So they can spur you on to love and good deeds. Because you can't do it on your own. I've got a uh, prayer that I'd like to read for you. It's uh, one of my favorite prayers that I read frequently at the beginning of my day. And before anybody asks, I'm going to actually post it online. So if you'd like to use it, here it is. It's a prayer by John Bailey entitled, My First Thought. And it's a wonderful way to start your day. Eternal Father of my soul, let my first thought today be of you. Let my first impulse be to worship you. Let my first speech be your name. Let my first action be be to kneel before you. For your perfect wisdom and perfect goodness, for the love with which you have loved humanity, for the love with which you have loved me, for the great and mysterious opportunity of life, for the indwelling of your spirit in my heart, for the sevenfold gifts of the spirit, I praise and worship you, O Lord. Yet, let me not, when this morning prayer is said, think my worship ended and spend the day in forgetfulness of you rather from these moments of quietness let light go forth and joy and power that will remain with me throughout all the days and hours of my life keeping me chaste in thought keeping me temperate and truthful in speech 
keeping me faithful and diligent in my work, keeping me humble in my estimation of myself, keeping me honorable and generous in all my dealings with others, keeping me loyal to every hallowed memory of the past, keeping me mindful of my eternal destiny as a child of yours, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the presence of your Holy Spirit, we give you thanks. May we be people who are more than those who believe. May our faith be the kind of faith that motivates us to love. First, to love you for who you are. And second, to love the people that you've created in your image. We pray, Lord, that we will be overwhelmed with a desire to know you. And that you will grant us that desire. And that we more and more will come to a knowledge of you which will enrich every fiber of our being and prepare us to dwell with you eternally. In your name we pray. Amen.